It's Wednesday, December 23, 2020, and welcome to Asia Pacific Today. I'm Mike Ryan. Just how has the China trade war impacted Queensland's wine industry? Shortly, the president from the Queensland Wine Industry Association, Andrew Corrigan. How will decreasing rainfall, rising populations and a vibrant agricultural industry affect California's water supply? Dr. Jeffrey Mount from the Public Policy Institute of California Water Policy Center will join us shortly. Plus the latest on the U.S. elections with Nevada's leading Democrat, Kirk Light. China's trade war with Australia is affecting a growing number of industries. China has imposed tariffs on Australian wine imports ranging from 107% to 212%. Andrew Corrigan is president at the Queensland Wine Industry Association. Now, for those wondering what the Queensland Wine Industry Association, easy for me to say, is... It's the representative body across the diverse Queensland region. The Queensland wine industry has grown significantly over the years to cover around about 1,500 hectares throughout the state of Queensland. Andrew Corrigan became the president this month. Andrew is also a master of wine, a consultant and educator in wine, director of eWine Consult, and the director of Hidden Creek Wines and Catalyst Wines. Uh, Andrew Corrigan, are you the actual president or do I refer to you as president-elect? No, the actual president, Mike. I, uh, I had been on the committee of the Queensland Wine Industry Association for the past year, but at our recent AGM, I was officially made the president. Um, oh. a, a role, it's... Um, it's one of these volunteer roles that all these organisations do. I mean, each state of Australia has a, a, a an association of the wine producers in that state, and so that that association represents, I guess, it's our industry body, if you like, mm-hmm. and we affiliate to the Australia National uh, Wine Body, which is called Wine Australia, and um, I was officially made the president. So. Um, Oh, something I enjoy, you know. I, well, I hope I'll enjoy it. I, it'll be a, a role I do for the next two years, presumably. And I refer to you then as Mr. President. Mr. President, that'll do. <laughs> hey, can you give us an update on the impact of uh, Chinese dumping duties on the Queensland wine industry? Sure. Um, Queensland, in essence and as in summary, has not ever done that much to China. Queensland certainly has had one or two larger producers um, and uh, one of those producers has been doing a bit to China. But I think they saw and a few saw that this problem with China has been coming for a few months now. And so I do know that that one producer in Queensland that was going to be affected has been looking for other export markets and has a very active plan to put that into fruition, Um, just like other Australian producers in other states who would be similarly affected by the the Chinese ban. And I guess you'd say that there's a little bit of scrambling going on in some areas. It's been an interesting thing in that uh, 
Australia has occupied quite a good position hitherto in China where we were sending our upper premium and middle premium wines to China. We weren't really doing the low end and the cheap stuff. That that part of the market was occupied by countries such as Chile and a little bit Italy and France, actually. And so um, we... Uh, we're doing very well, and um, yeah, I think everyone sort of knew about the news that uh, Penfolds announced a lot where they were doing very, very well with their upper-end wines, the very expensive wines, which I think most Australians can't even afford these days, and they were sending those to China in um, in big quantities. So I think someone with a very strong brand like Penfolds will probably be able to readily enough find other markets. I mean, they're already big in the US and there are other, you know, emerging wealthier middle classes in Asian countries uh, that are interested in Australian wine and um, the, the press releases from Penfolds say the countries such as uh, Vietnam and Thailand and, and others will become markets for them. I guess the part of the Australian wine production that will scramble a little bit will be the sort of medium medium premium uh, producers who haven't got such a strong brand as Penfolds. They've got a strong enough brand, I guess, but they'll have to go and find these other markets. And, you know, we may see their wines back in the Australian market for a bit. Mm-hmm. When I say a bit, I guess it's generally considered that those that really are looking and trying hard will have to We'll, we'll probably take about the two-year time frame to replace the Chinese market with other markets. And that that may come where they can't sell the wine as good a price as they used to in China, but nonetheless, they'll, they'll find other buyers. So I think it's going to affect producers a lot in South Australia and other states, not so much Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, we, Queensland weren't that big in China. So... You know, the bottom line to your question is that in, in Queensland, we're not really that affected by this Chinese ban. How is most wine sold in this market? Are there contracts of sale where producers get paid for the wine shipped or is it much of the business done on consignment? No, interesting question. In fact, the lessons that have been learned are that you have the best success by miles, or hitherto you had the best success in China by miles, if you had some good control and very close relationship over your distributor. Now, a lot of um, producers, both large and medium, actually went and, um, um, you know, found a Chinese business and did a joint venture where they became your distributor, but you part owned them or, you know, part controlled them or controlled them to a very great extent. So Penfolds, in fact, had their own distribution people on the ground in China. The... Uh, experiences of people who went through an agent or, you know, a merchant um, so and, you know, various letters of credit type arrangements generally seem to have been fairly unhappy experiences and, um, you know, wine sat in hot sheds unsold for a bit or um, there was a flurry of activity to begin with and then it wasn't that um, successful after a bit more time. So the story of success by Australia in China with wine has been very much um, controlling your own distribution and your sales channels. And that gets right down to having a very uh, strong hand in um, 
the area sales reps and marketing and so on. And um, that's been pretty much the story of Australian wine in China. What do you think has gone wrong with the China wine market for Australia? And, and why did they target this sector? I don't think, and, I, and the wine industry generally would agree, that, that we're part of a much bigger um, issue. The, a number of industries in, in Australia, uh, primary production industries, were targeted by China initially with some sort of um, um, slight complaint. You know, um, they would purport to say that the particular product didn't meet some standard or whatever. In the case of Australian wine, they said, oh, we're concerned that um, Australian wines are um, supported economically by the Australian government and therefore it's um, the pricing that you're charging is not a fair price and there are international standards that prevent countries from subsidising and then dumping product. And so they, the Chinese initially stated that as their excuse and they circled around a bit and without actually banning us, the Australian wine was held up at import locations in some areas and so on. In more recent times, they haven't bothered with um, any of the non-compliance excuses. They've just put a huge tariff on. They at one stage said that um, it was to protect Chinese winemakers and China does have a growing um, wine production industry, and in fact, a lot of Australians consult and help the Chinese. I think it's true to say that the Australian wine that was being imported into China has never been a threat to Australia to Chinese produced wine, yeah. but that yeah. certainly didn't stop the Chinese using it as um, as an excuse for the moment. But because in recent weeks, the whole rhetoric and the whole issue has um, ramped up substantially, and um, um, so many other products are affected and even just the news yesterday and today that the substantial business of exporting Australian coal to China is now threatened. Now, originally they said there was a particular uh, sensitive mineral component in the coal that worried them. Um, they've forgotten about that pretense. They just announced that there's going to be bans on Australian coal. And uh, the various experts on China have made their comments saying that, you know, we're part, Australia is part of a bigger, you know, international sort of jockeying for, for position and power that China's going through. Um, the Chinese themselves seem to have their own internal debates about um, there's the hawkish people and the not so hawkish people. And, uh, um, you know, it's not where you can easily find out about the internal decision process in the Chinese government because it's, that sort of thing is not um, news that's very well known. But it appears at the moment that the uh, disruption to Australia's export to China is part of a plan by China to be sending messages to the whole world. And we just happen to be the particular easy target for the moment. Um, I guess it all goes to the fact that... Um, Australia and, and people, have, you know, the politicians have been talking about this for some time, but Australia does need to diversify its export sales customers because if we have too many big eggs in one basket and something goes wrong, it'll be expensive. And I guess just at the moment, there's a little bit of that happening to us. The eggs the is important. Part of it. The egg manufacturers haven't been targeted yet, but take that aside, <laughs> but the uh, eggs in one basket, truly with wisdom of hindsight, uh, how should producers be treating this market if they have business there? 
Well, I guess um, the because, as I mentioned earlier, the um, position of Australian wine in China was a really good position. You know, we we were doing. Um, the medium premium and upper premium wines and um, the Chinese had a real taste for it. They still have, by the way, and um, a lot of um, Chinese are going to be annoyed that they can't get their Australian wines anymore. And for the price and the taste, Australia delivered a product that other countries don't do. Australia is probably one of the masterful producers at integrating the oak barrel richness character into Australian wine, particularly our reds, of course, in what's called a seamless way. You just don't see the the oak, but on the other hand, you get this chocolatey richness, which is a taste being made very famous by South Australian producers, um, particularly Penfolds and Wolfblas. Mm. Now, that taste is perhaps considered a little old hat in Australia because there's a slight sweet red chocolatey character to it. Mm. Although a lot of us probably learned about red wine um, by discovering that taste. But um, export countries love it, and um, mm. the uh, Chinese certainly love it. The issue with that kind of wine is that you do have to use classy oak barrels, and your winemaking has to be skillful. And that type of wine does not apply to the bottom end competitive price area. And one of the big sad issues that's always been there for us is that one of our biggest markets, which was the UK, developed a taste for the cheap end of Australia. And so a lot of people in the UK don't realise that Australia can produce these more sophisticated, very satisfying wines. But to get those wines, you've got to spend a bit more money. And the Chinese were very happy to do that. So in answer to your question, in a rather long-winded way, um, these other markets that Australia will now have to be developing are not only going to be to get your product there, there's going to have to be the marketing to get to consumers to say to them, look, if you spend a little more money, you get this lovely wine, um, which is much lovelier than shopping at the at the bottom end. Interesting yeah. you mentioned about the uh, quality oak. Uh, for wine, I think in uh, when I was growing up, and I grew up in a wine growing area in Victoria. But the uh, when I went to college, the uh, we didn't worry about the yolk. We had cardboard, um, cardboard <laughs> cask, and they were just wonderful. You know, mix it with orange juice, and but we've actually grown. The whole of Australia has grown, and it's uh, it's an amazing industry. Can you tell us more about the particular qualities of wines from various parts of Queensland? Sure. Um, what is um, not generally um, known by um, a lot of people actually about to Queensland and its wine is that we have um, two main regions um, and they're both very high altitude, um, particularly an area called the Granite Belt, which accounts for most Queensland wine. Um, The Granite Belt's on the top of the Great Dividing Range, just north of the New South Wales border. So it's actually got a lot in common with districts such as Orange and Armadale and Glen Innes. Um, My particular own winery, Hidden Creek, has our highest vineyard is at about 1,000 metres altitude, and that's pretty high up. Um, We're higher, for example, than the cold climate parts of Victoria, so in Victoria, the King Valley and right at the top of the King Valley is the Whitlands area, which is where Brown Brothers gets all its uh, grapes from to make its sparkling wines. Mm-hmm. And um, the Whitlands is the mm-hmm. highest part, and it's about 820 to 850 metres. Well, we're 1,000 metres, so we're higher again. 
And, of course, this altitude means that in winter it's freezing cold and we get snow sort of every second or third year. And in the autumn and spring, we do get hot days, but we get cold nights. So um, I'll be, I'm in Brisbane now, but I'll be up there this weekend. And at night time, even though we're in December, I'll have to put a light pullover on at night because um, that's just our climate. And um, you get that type of climate, though, in central Victoria, particularly in the more elevated parts, so the Grampians and the Great Western and that sort of central, slightly western part of Victoria has a relatively similar uh, climate, although Victoria would overall be a little cooler. But um, certainly in terms of thinking about wine in Queensland, it's not a question of identifying with, you know, the tropical fruit thing because we've got these bits of Queensland that are not that at all. And I've just described the, the granite belt. The, the other area that is of note that produces quite a lot of wine, it's not as big as the granite belt, but it, nonetheless it's uh, still a reasonable size, is an area called the South Burnett, and it's a district around the Mergen Kingaroy area. And it's about the 500 metres or so altitude um, inland. Again, gets pretty cool, not as cold as the Granite Belt. Has a climate probably not unlike the Hunter Valley, um, perhaps a little drier than the Hunter Valley, but uh, not unlike. So we've got those two main regions. Um, there are other smaller regions as well, but mm. the, the answer to this um, this uh, interest about Queensland wine is that we have the high altitude and the cold climate and uh we do produce um, very interesting wine because there are there are certain grape varieties that love that type of climate, and um, mm. they've been grown in central Victoria for some time, and they're varieties that thrive in inland extremes of climate, extremes of temperature, and so you get grapes from um, the northern Rhone Valley in France, which is the climate I've described. You, but particularly the northern high plains of Spain. Um, very, very similar to the to the uh, climate I'm talking about, and so the grapes of um, of northern Rhone are uh, Shiraz. They call it Syrah. There's also Viognier and Marsan and Roussan, a bit of Grenache, yeah. and then over in the Spanish regions, there's a pr- principally Tempranillo, but there's also um, well, we call it Vedello, they pronounce it Vedeco, but um, there are some other varieties as well, and. These sorts of varieties grow um, there. That's their home. And, of course, they grow very well in these inland regions of Australia. And, you know, it's no uh, uh, no coincidence that areas such as uh, the Great Western and the Grampians and that part of Victoria does a terrific um, spicy, peppery, uh, cherry-like Shiraz. And we do that kind of style in the Granite Belt. As well, actually, we get confused with Great Western and the Grampians quite a bit um, if people can't see the label. And that all stands to reason because um, the parts of Queensland I'm describing are relatively similar to those inland parts of Victoria, and we make that kind of wine pretty well. A lot of people in Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand think that our wine industry is basically pineapple punch. Uh, and, and how dare <laughs> they sure. even think that? But by the way, I have to say, I have to say this sincerely, you're a terrible person, not even lunchtime. And we're already thinking about a couple of uh, sips of uh, <laughs> all for, uh, you know, to study, to uh, work out what I'm talking about. 
So it's all professional, of course, but now I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to a, uh, a tipple or two. And it's, as I said, not even lunchtime. Now, what is upon us, this is um, to talk about the wines that you grow. Now that Christmas is almost here, or the festive season, for those who think I'm being politically incorrect because we can't really say Christmas in some countries, what would you suggest is good buying and tasting at the moment? Now, this is something that I'm really interested in. As I said, I'm thirsty. <laughs> well, I think um, a lot of Australians take the opportunity over the, uh, the the break, the holiday break and the holiday season, and obviously it's the friends and family thing because of Christmas and so on. You take the opportunity to meet people and enjoy lunch, which you might not ordinarily do. And, of course, that means even in um, southern parts of Australia, I mean, we can have cold spells, but generally speaking at lunchtime across Australia at this time of the year, it's pretty warm. And so um, whatever you're having with lunch lends itself to something pretty chilled and going with light foods at lunchtime. If you're doing something in the evening, that's a different thing. But Mm. the lunchtime Mm -hmm. style means that, you know, avocado and salads and prawns and light seafood and perhaps cold ham and that sort of food, which is just lovely in my view. And the lighter wines really suit that. So the chilled white wines, and if they're lighter, I think this is not the time for Chardonnay. I think Chardonnay is an evening-style wine. It's more complex. It's bigger-flavoured, whereas lunchtime is, well, particularly Riesling, uh, Semillons from the Hunter Valley, um, the uh, Sauvignon Blanc maybe. It's a little, little bigger. But one of the things we're seeing a lot in Australia of recent times are these emerging and alternative varieties. And uh, there's a lot of very interesting white wines that are emerging as well as lighter reds. And we do those quite well in Queensland as well, but they're um, around Australia. So there are Italian white wines, which up until a few years ago, the, the Italian white grapes and so on were spurned a bit. But now you see Fiano and Vermentino quite commonly grown in different parts of Australia. And there's quite a lot of excitement. I mean, there's some fears of the fact that with global warming, we need to be careful. And these Italian white varieties are renowned that even if they're grown in a warmish climate, they hold their freshness and acidity really well. And I think Vermentino is particularly true of that. Um, Vermentino hails from the island of Sardinia, which is off the west coast of Italy in the middle of the Mediterranean. And it's a delicious, tingly, lemony-flavoured white wine, which you can serve very chilled. And um, it's fabulous. And Italy also offers um, lighter, more savoury reds that lend themselves to being chilled and served at lunchtime. And Australia does very good versions of those Italian varieties. So varieties such as Dolcetto and Barbera is a particular favourite of mine. Um, uh, Sangiovese, which is the famous red grape that makes Chianti, which has been quite successful in Australia. And then I guess the controversial grape variety is the Italian red variety called Nebbiolo, which is the powerhouse variety behind the red wines of Piemonte, and it makes one of Italy's most famous reds, which is called Barolo. Now, in Australia, we've had a chequered history with Nebbiolo, but nonetheless, there's some pretty good examples. It's probably a little richer than the other reds that I listed, but Mm. those Italian-style reds, either from Italy itself or the Australian examples, Mm -hmm. serve chilled um, in hot weather for lunch 
wonderful choices in in my book. <laughs> in fact, it's, in my book, it sounds great too. By the way, as you were talking, I got a message in my uh, uh, earpiece from the producer to say that they've locked the the, the wine fridge. And uh, because of you, I, uh, there goes my tipple for lunch. I'll have to wait for the evening, which is distressing to say the least. Very but, distressing. <laughs> they put an extra padlock on the fridge. <laughs> uh, they're they're going to take it away, I'm sure, because where there's a will, there's a glass of wine. Uh, Andrew Andrew uh, Corrigan, uh, President-elect, uh, or elected president, whichever one you want. Thank you very much. Have a great Christmas, and uh, we'll get through this China stuff and... Um, and uh, 2021, thank God, 2020 is gone. 2021 is hopefully a lot better than this year. It'll be on its way, I think, with um, hopefully COVID behind us and trips to cellar doors and all the business that uh, wine producers love. It'll be a better year, yes. And I think um, the success by Australians in getting their wine into export markets um, over the years has been pretty good and mm. China won't be easy to replace but I think nonetheless there's um, some confidence levels that um, it'll it'll happen in due course so it's been lovely to talk with you yeah fantastic Andrew thank you very much all the best Mike decreasing rainfall and rising populations whilst maintaining a vibrant agricultural industry could heighten severe water shortages for California California is no stranger to disasters such as persistent droughts and wildfires that's devastated the land. The state comprises 14% of the US economy, much of which is fueled by agriculture. The state's agricultural industry produces $50 billion in output. California supplies about 50% of the country's fruits, nuts and vegetables across almonds, apricots, uh, avocados and many more grown foods. And California has an insatiable thirst for water. Dr. Jeffrey Mount is a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California Water Policy Center. Dr. Mount, or Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, glad to be here. Can you tell us about your work with the Public Policy Institute of California? So I am a senior fellow, um, and this Water Policy Center is part of a, 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 a nonpartisan, nonprofit, think tank called the Public Policy Institute of California that does a lot of policy research. And my, my role is uh, I'm a physical scientist, a geomorphologist of, of all things, so who works closely with a variety of people, economists, biologists, engineers, to basically look at forward-looking solutions to California's challenges with water scarcity, which you, which you laid out in your introduction. California, like Australia, has problems with water. What are the main issues? Well, we're very much like Australia, um, and it and, and it's, it's it's strikingly so. The issue with California is it's a terrific place to grow crops. It's a terrific place to live. Uh, it's you know extraordinary industry. I mean, I remind you, we're the sixth largest economy in the world, so it's really quite a place. The problem is it has very unreliable water supplies, and this is no different than Australia, particularly the Murray Darling Basin, as an example. We are the most variable climate in North America and in, in California, meaning when you look when you look out over the course of each year, we have a drought, same way as you do in do in Australia, where it, us, it stops raining here in May and doesn't start doesn't start raining again if we're lucky until November. So we have an annual drought and then we get these periodic droughts like the 
extraordinary one we had 2012 to 2016, which wasn't as long as your millennium drought, but it was certainly as intense. So that's the nature of our climate. And there is no place in North America that's more variable than California. So you got it. I mean, unreliable water supply and an extraordinary economy. Mm. We've heard uh, Devin Nunes talk about this. Is it true that substantial excess water from snow melts and rivers, etc., still runs into the sea, which seems like a great waste and uh, not really utilizing the, the, the water that you have? Yeah, so I, 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 my, my smirky smile uh, is, is just to go, I, I hear this all the time. So let me, let me back up and first put Devin Nunes in context. He's a, he represents uh, uh, an, an agricultural district in the San Joaquin Valley, which is always dealing with, with chronic water scarcity. And so that's a major challenge in his district. And when you're dealing with chronic water scarcity, you, you're often looking for scapegoats. Uh, and so there is a lot of scapegoating of the environment, uh, or better yet, uh, they'll pick a, a, a listed species, in this case, Delta smelt. We can talk more about that later. But the, So there's a lot of scapegoating on that. But what the problem with political sloganeering is it has to take something, as everybody knows, it's very complicated and nuanced. Management of water, it's not, there's no black and whites in water. The only black and white in water is there are no black and whites in water. So it's very complicated. And then you make it into a political slogan and one that he is, he and others from his area have used constantly as water is wasted to the sea. Well, um, I guess that's in the eye of the beholder. But to actually use water in this system, we have to let it go to the ocean. I'll give you a classic example. and Maybe we'll talk more about this later. The kind of the hub of our water supply is in an estuary of all places. It's the estuary at the upper end of the San Francisco, of San Francisco Bay, and it's called the Sacramento San Joaquin Estuary, or Delta is what we call it. And it turns out that a lot of the water that Devin Nunez District relies upon comes out of that estuary, has to be pumped out of it. And if you don't let water go to the ocean, so-called wasted, that estuary gets salty. They have to keep water running through it, otherwise it gets too salty and you can't use it to grow your crops. So that's the first first thing. The second is is that since the 1920s, that agricultural region, the San Joaquin Valley in particular, which I will tell you is the most productive agricultural land maybe anywhere in the United States, um, they've been living beyond their means there since the 20s, long before the environment or con- concepts of water wasted to the sea began. Um, and that is they've been basically mining groundwater in that area. Uh, a lot of groundwater has been mined out of that area, and it's getting more and more expensive to deal with that because now your water tables are so far below the surface. So um, it's a nuanced answer. There is no doubt we could store more water, let, let water not as much water go to the sea, but there's two reasons we don't. One, it's California. It does all come at once. It's nice if you get rain spread out over the course of the year, but frankly, we live on five to seven big storms per year. That's our water supply. So we just don't have the facilities to capture it all. You have to let it go. That, that's, that's the first problem. And then the second is is we have a series of environmental laws that have been in place for the last 40 years, going on 50 years, which says that water in California is a public trust resource. It doesn't belong to anybody. And so all the facets that water supports have to be balanced. And whether it's for direct economic uses like 
growing crops, very high value crops on, on farms, or it's whether it's keeping a fishery, a salmon fishery going, or it's just the ability to, for people to recreate within it or to use it for drinking water. We have to balance all of those. And what that means is not all the water can be captured and used for typical consumptive uses, economic uses such as farms. What are some of the more serious issues that have emerged with groundwater use and its availability? Yeah, and so I, in my, my earlier comment, I alluded mm. to that. We have, we were, for groundwater, this is different, very different than what a lot of places in, in Australia where your groundwater is kind of salty, so people don't actually want to use it. So that's why you work your surface water so, so directly. But let me give you context here mm. in California. Roughly 30% of the supply of water in California statewide uh, is comes from groundwater, uh, and the rest, 70%, comes from surface water. And so we've got a, a we have one of the world's most complex storage and conveyance systems, which captures and controls that surface water, tries to get us through droughts, but we are really heavily dependent on groundwater to get us through the really tough times. So on an average year. Uh, about 30% of the supply comes from groundwater. After about three years, we've drawn our reservoirs down and more and more of the agricultural community and, and urban community has to turn to groundwater. And so in the high of a drought, just the drought we had just recently in particular, you're talking more than 60 to almost 65% of your supply comes from groundwater. Well, what's happened is over the years, um, we have just simply not been putting money back in the bank on the groundwater side. So we have been mining groundwater extensively, and particularly in the, in the Central Valley uh, and in, these, in these, these agricultural regions, which are so productive in the state. And we have, we have a crisis, uh, a groundwater crisis. And for many reasons, we have a groundwater crisis, not the least of which is just getting very, very expensive to pump it. And water quality is declining. Uh, and there's no easy replacement. And then on top of that, in the sort of classic tragedy of the commons, excess pumping of groundwater has caused a, an array of unintended consequences, uh, not the least of which is extraordinary land subsidence. As the, as the aquifers compact as you pull the, pull the water out of them, the land subsides and tens of feet in some areas, some areas as much as 50 feet over, over history. So this lowering of the land surface elevations starts to break up your infrastructure it wrecks bridges it wrecks roads and then i well not ironic tragically it actually changes the very canal systems you're using to try and move water around so you mm. can't move as much water around because of the subsidence which is makes problems worse so you can't get your surface water to these areas and people are more reliant on groundwater so we have been out of whack for a long time on this, and, the, and during this last drought, the 2012-2016 drought, when so many people had to turn to groundwater, it was, it was clear we finally were going to have to rip the bandage off and try and solve this problem. Mm. So the state of, California, state of California passed its most significant legislation in 100 years on the water, and basically it's called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And, and basically what we're doing is we're giving all the groundwater pumpers 20 years to come into balance in their basins and become sustainable. Mm. Frankly, most places that's going to be demand management is going to be the bulk of that. They're going to have to reduce their water use. Mm. And that's going to be some big consequences. What about technologies um, that can 
be used to solve groundwater problems. Um, anything that's floating around out there that just might help? Well, floating is a metaphor. That's good. Um, but the uh, uh, so we are seeing an avalanche of technology coming in, mm-hmm. and it it comes in it comes in various forms. First, good groundwater management uh, relies on good accounting. I mean, you have to know who's using how much. There are no laws here in California that you have to tell people how much groundwater you use. But basically, with this new law, we're going to have to have accounting. So all kinds of technologies have started to appear to not only the, the, the numerical models that describe how groundwater moves and recharge of groundwater, and, and, but even using, using space-based instrumentation to estimate how much water people are using and what the overall consequences. So that's one form of technology that's coming in. And there is an extraordinary influx of technology in, uh, in agriculture alone. As you know, we're becoming phenomenally efficient with the use of water. In fact, I will argue that area is probably, that is the San Joaquin area where they are growing so much high value crops. Um, they are using technology like mad. My, my university, the University of California Davis is one of the leaders in that, in developing that technology. And right out there back door is the place where it's being used extensively. But even just, and then the monitoring, which is really amazing, the, the soil moisture monitoring, the very prescribed application of water and fertilizers. Technology is helping. However, just to, to be perfectly clear, technology is not creating water. It's just making more efficient use of water. And therein lies a problem that I, I want to highlight about technology here. Um, for years, the federal government has put money into making farmers more efficient with the use of their water. Uh, drip irrigation, you know, small-scale microsprinklers, you know, monitoring soil moisture. It's really terrific stuff. Here's the problem. The source of groundwater recharge in this rich agriculture region is not rain. It's irrigation. Because we move water such vast distances in California, it's basically taking water from wetter places and putting it into drier places and reach and over irrigation is recharging the groundwater. One of the consequences of more efficient use of, of water is that instead of farmers letting that water go back into the ground where it can be stored, they just plant more crops. And so the net is the net use of water increases. So all this technology is great, but it doesn't create more water. Mm-hmm. And an unintended consequence is we actually use more. Um, tell me this, where has policy development or implementation failed the most? Well, you know, I, I'm sorry to say that I can't choose one thing. <laughs> many, um, many. <laughs> well, I mean, it, and also these things are always, in, these, they're always intertwined. You can't, you, you can't separate them. So to give you sort of quick background on that, the, we Today, at least the group that I work with, we think of water in four sectors. Um, urban, which is the economic engine of California. Agriculture, which is the economic engine of rural California. I do want to remind you, agriculture is about 2.5% of the GDP in California, but mm. it uses 80% of, of the developed water. So mm. I mean, it's the big water user because you need water as a through, throughput for that industry. Mm. So then we have these... There's a there's a uh, environmental justice, social justice issue that is really cropped up here in California, where there ha- were historic policy failures. And these these rural communities, that when everybody started pumping groundwater, groundwater like mad, they 
they were left without water. They were left high and dry. Whether it was a personal well or it was a small small utility, they were left high and dry or their, or their groundwater quality was horrible. And then there's the last one, which has been probably the single greatest challenge and it has not worked out well, is the environment. Remember, water is a public trust resource in California. It's managed for, for multiple objectives. Uh, and, that we ha- and we struggle with that balance all, all the time. We are we are seeing a, what I would say is it's the, the beginning of a probably a quite a wave of extinctions here in California of of a variety of freshwater organisms, both those that live in the river, along the river, and in wetlands. And we, this is just something we haven't worked out. We haven't achieved that balance. We haven't come up with something smart on that. So policy on the urban side, I think, has been pretty good. Um, and the reason is the urbans have money. I mean, they've, they've got a lot of money uh, because they collect rate, they collect fees, and they can do it. So through droughts, we've noticed the urban. I mean, we're probably at the front end of a drought right now uh, in California. We had an incredibly dry year last year, and we're, we've got we started out to another dry year. I can tell you, the L.A. Basin, no problem. All the reservoirs are full. Mm. The, the joke in water in California is L.A. always gets its water. Uh, why? Because they go out and steal it fair and square is the joke. I mean, they have the money. What was it? Water, Mark Reisner said water flows uphill to money. So the <laughs> urban areas, <laughs> the big urban areas have the capacity to do this. That and they have pursued of diversification of their portfolio. Uh, I mean, from a when you think of a you know financial portfolio, what do they tell you? Be diverse. Mm. That is what they're doing in the urban areas. The agricultural areas. This has been a this is a this has been a greater challenge. But we have now put in place this new policy, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which uh, is going to be very painful for the agricultural world um i mean when you think about it, there there's going to be substantial fallowing of land um hundreds of thousands of hectares uh, will have to be fallowed in order to bring those basins into balance and that's a that's a major challenge and although we put in place a policy which will drive it in that direction mm. uh, towards sustainability we haven't got the backup policies that you need to get a soft landing for the agricultural community and the communities that surround them. I mean, there's, there's great public interest in having that done as with the least amount of social and economic disruption as we can. So we're still, I don't want to call it a policy failure. We're still working it out, that, that side. On the rural communities, um, we are still working that out. But um, as my late mother used to say, son, if money can solve it, it's not a problem. This is solvable with money in these in these communities. It's just to try and figure out the right mechanism, help from the federal government, help from the state, to get them reliable, clean water supplies, which we consider in California a human right. And then lastly, on the environment, environment we really need a reset on that. Um, we're dealing with a now almost 50-year-old law, uh, the Endangered Species Act, Federal Endangered Species Act, and the Matching Act uh, on the state side. And the Federal Clean Water Act and the Matching Act on the state side, these these creaky old acts haven't really been updated uh, to sort of to understand and accommodate how changed these systems are. So that's probably the place where we've just been paralyzed uh, on trying to come up with um, an alternative to the way we're doing it, which is using species which are teetering on the edge of extinction. 
to really manage ecosystems, the entire environment. Mm. It's never the intention of the original act, and it's really kind of almost a perversion of the act when you think about it. So that's a place where we need some really big, broad, new thinking to try and deal with it. Because, as I remind you, nobody owns water in California. You own a right to use it. Mm. You, you, you apply for a right to use it, but you don't own it. It is a public trust resource. So that part we're still struggling with. But I will tell you, the agricultural community in California um, is extraordinary. I mean, their their productivity is through the roof, and of course, they have shifted very heavily. This is this is a this is a scary thing. Um, they've shifted very heavily to the perennial crops like almonds and pistachios and walnuts and and some of the and some of the citrus fruits. Uh, so these perennial crops require reliable water supplies. You can follow a tomato field. You can't follow a pistachio orchard, mm. and so I'm not without great economic cost. Um, so that part we haven't quite got. So that's waiting to figure out how we deal with sort of reducing our water use, demand management, along with some increase in supply. But mm. the laws of physics apply here. There's not abundant available new water in California. I mean, it's the same thing in the Murray Darling Basin. That's a, an example of a, a basin that's pretty well tapped out. So it's not like you're going to make a lot of new water in that basin. we got the same problem here in California. Water, very political. Uh, last four years um, under the Trump administration, the next four with uh, Biden-Harris, much of a difference with uh, regards to, to water in um, one California and then two rural California? Yeah, boy, it has been an interesting last four years. Um, good or bad, administ- good or bad. Well, see, this is what I want to say is that we, we've had we've held several conferences uh, in my own. Jamie, we're a nonpartisan shop. Uh, mm-hmm. We try very hard to stay out of Republican versus Democratic mm-hmm. politics, mm-hmm. really to sort of focus on the resolution of the issues. And there were some really good things and some really bad things that happened in the last four years. So it, you can't just say it was all bad or it was all good. A lot of it depends on your on your uh, on your political point of view. Uh, the there was a very strong effort on the part of the Trump administration to increase the amount of water that goes to agriculture in, in California. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very divisive, uh, and in fact, it divided the state and the federal government, and they, in fact, are suing each other. Well, actually, in this case, the state is suing the federal government over their own actions, which is incredibly counterproductive. But the fact of the matter is, water in California... Mark, by the way, Mark Twain did not say whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. He should have. Uh, I mean, if he, I mean, it's logical to assume that he would have said such a thing. But the the the, the issue that we we're, we're facing here is there is not a good relationship between California and the federal government, and the federal government offers operates a very very large water project here called the Central Valley Project, which is runs in parallel and in cooperation with one that's run by the state. Of the state water project. And these projects move water vast distance, vast distances. So it's really important to get along with the federal government here. Um, if there's one thing I can hope for with the change from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, it might be less of an adversarial process with the federal government. That said, it used to be that the federal government would would come in on horses or tractors and come to the rescue uh, in the West. I mean, that's the, the Reclamation mm. Act was 
now more than 115 years old, this, this great federal act, which put massive amounts of federal dollars into water projects uh, and, and to, to spur economic development. Well, California hardly needs any more economic development funds from the federal government. Uh, we just need a better job of managing what we've got. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and frankly, in the last 30 years, the, the, well, actually, ever since Ronald Reagan, this is, this is a great example, a former governor, former governor from California, federal investment, it hasn't dried up, but it's shrunk to a very small amount. I mean, federal investments today in water, uh, account for three, in a, in a good year, 5% of investments in, in, in water infrastructure supplies and all the rest. So the federal government's a small financial player now in water in California. Uh, and I don't see that changing, no matter how much, how much you get along with the federal government. I don't see massive amounts of money mm. coming into California to fix stuff, to fix broken infrastructure. Mm. So it's a fair, it is a fair question. Um, uh, we used to think that there was going to be a big change between the Bush administration and the Obama administration uh, in California. And it turns out in the end it wasn't. California really is in charge of its own water, mm. mostly. The federal government is important. It's important. But really, it's our own, it's our own politics rule the day in, Cal- in water in California. Interesting times ahead. Um, I've used it, yeah. this comment a few times. The Chinese said, may you live an interesting life. <laughs> we certainly are. It would be nice if we just calm down, just simmer down just a bit. But um, interesting. Uh, I mean, uh, without water, we're all, as again, as we'd say in Australia, without water, we're stuffed. <laughs> yeah. So another great Australian saying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yep. Look, a, 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 a real pleasure chatting. Uh, Got to do this again, have a because uh, there's so many issues, and uh, it's impossible yeah. to talk about all the issues in the time we have. Dr. Jeffrey Mount, thank you very much. My pleasure. The Sacramento San Joaquin Delta is California's greatest water management challenge. The delta lies at the eastern end of the San Francisco Bay. Its waters are brackish on the western edge, where the tides push salt water in and out. Its waters are fresh further inland, where the flows of the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers merge. Since the mid-19th century, the delta has been utterly transformed. Following the gold rush, farmers drained the roughly 700,000 acres of marsh that made up the delta. They constructed more than 1,000 miles of levees, creating dozens of islands of farmland. Over time, farming has caused these lands to sink. Many Delta Islands now lie more than 15 feet below sea level. The Delta was further changed by the extensive use of its waters. One-third of runoff from the Delta watershed is used upstream, principally for farms. And two of the largest water projects in California, the State Water Project and the Central Valley Project, export roughly a fifth of the Delta's waters to more than 25 million people and 3 million acres of farmland in the Bay Area, the San Joaquin Valley, and Southern California. Water supplies from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta are declining. Quality of this water is protected today by a system of levees that hold back salt from San Francisco Bay. As the sea level continues to rise, land level continues to sink, and we have earthquakes in this part of the world, this system is a grave risk. Fixing this will be expensive. Not fixing it will also be expensive because we'll have much less water for the people of California. 
Managing the waters of the delta is complicated by changes to the ecosystem. There are dozens of native plants and animals that make this place home or pass through as part of their migration. Many of them are now threatened with extinction. This includes the delta smelt, salmon, sturgeon, steelhead trout. And the sources of stress to these fishes are many. This changes the flow regime, transformations of habitat within the delta and upstream of the delta, the presence of invasive species, and now a changing climate. Thus, any fix is going to require that we address the problems facing fish and other wildlife that depend on it. In 2009, the legislature passed the Delta Reform Act. This law calls for the Delta to be managed for two co-equal goals, improved water supply reliability and ecosystem health, while also protecting the Delta as a unique and evolving place. Several large, complex, and highly controversial planning efforts are underway to address these goals. This includes a proposal to replumb the delta, using tunnels to move water from the Sacramento River to Central Valley Project and State Water Project pumps in the South Delta. All of these efforts are fraught with uncertainty, but California needs to move beyond planning and begin addressing the delta's many challenges. Well, he had time off last week. He was a very, very naughty boy, I presume. Well, just sick, but naughty sounds better. Uh, From Las Vegas, uh, the number one Democrat in Nevada is Kirk Clyde. No, 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 I'm definitely not. I think you can say that. A lot of disagreements I have with both parties, but of course, mainly the Republicans. And, you know, last week just highlighted to me the uh, collateral damage that we have from COVID-19 because try to get medical care. Try to actually see a physician in the flesh unless you're near death. That's just not happening. It's telemedicine and then trying to get tests lined up. It is a nightmare to try to get medical care. So, of course, you've got the 320,000 people that have died from COVID. 320,000. What's the population of Brisbane, Mike? That's about like half of Brisbane. Right? No, no. Brisbane's about two, 2 million now, I think. Oh, really? In the, yes. in the city itself? I have to ask um, you, but you, you couldn't yeah. get your medical organized. You couldn't. But did you get a pardon from Donald Trump? Oh, my gosh. You know, this is happening as we're recording this live from the OLA, the outdoor living area here in (laughs) formerly fabulous Las Vegas. So I'm just checking it out here from The New York Times. One of the reasons I believe in multiple cell phones. And of course, this one is acting up as always. But, you know, here's an interesting tabulation. It's from a professor at the Harvard Law School, a guy named Jack Goldsmith. So far, and I'm sure there'll be oh so many more. But so far, Trump has come up with 45 pardons or commutations and 88 percent aided someone with a personal tie to the president or furthered his political aims. And let's take a look at some that were pardoned today. We have uh, three congressmen that we'll get to. And one of the most egregious is this guy named Nicholas Slatton. He'd been sentenced to life in prison as a guard working for the company Blackwater, sentenced for his role in the killing of 17 Iraqi civilians in Baghdad, a massacre, according to the New York Times, that left one of the most lasting stains on the United States of the war. So he's got his get out of jail free card. George Papandreos, who worked on the Trump campaign, he served 
12 days in jail. He got a pardon. Three Republicans. Gee, it's amazing. It always seems to be Republican. Uh, former members of Congress, Duncan Hunter of California, Chris Collins of New York, Steve Stockman of Texas. Hunter was set to, to begin his 11-month sentence uh, coming up next month. Collins, he was in jail, still in jail, at least for another few days, serving a 26-month sentence for security fraud and a 10-year sentence to Stockman, the congressman from uh, Texas. Also, fraud and money laundering. But those folks, courtesy of the president, out of jail. The question is, can we make it another four weeks, four more weeks with Donald Trump in the White House? It's going to be a long four weeks. I keep a countdown on my other phone, just counting down the seconds until this travesty, this disaster for America becomes hopefully a forgotten part of history. And, you know, the the president-elect, Joe Biden, spoke today. And just to hear the difference, just to hear the difference, said, I was robbed. You were cheated. I was robbed. You were cheated. (laughs) But look, but, you know, just to hear. Crap over and over again. To hear someone that actually cares and wants to make things better for people. (gasps) What a contrast. Just, to, a just contrast. is it Joe Biden or Biden? I wasn't. I mean, and, and interesting that his wife is now a doctor. It's amazing She's what you can do when you have those magic powers of president elect. And, you know, you he, know he, will be, he will be. He will be. He will be president. Back in time. Nobody seemed to say anything about Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, it's interesting mm, they have a problem with Dr. Jill Biden. Yeah. The Democrats. OK, you're getting ready for your big inauguration. Uh, that's yes. Joe. Uh, does, does he? St- is it like a wedding? Does he stagger up the, you know, the and the uh, the ex president gives him away? Well, <laughs> well, you know that's way what a great way. That'd be almost. fantastic. Do you take this president to be your lawfully something? I, I have no idea what's going to happen. Of course, we're already seeing the sycophants out there in Salem, Oregon, this week. They were trying to bash their way Salem, the capital of the state of Oregon, trying to bash their way into the Capitol. But, you know, there are only two arrested. Where was the tear gas? Where were the smoke grenades Mm. from the police there? But it just goes to show the real risk here that we have in America. One of the good things is almost that it's winter because it's a lot of times hard to get mama off the sofa in the winter. It's too damn cold. I can't go out there and protest. I know it was stolen. I know this election was stolen, but damn it, I cannot get off the sofa. Look, ob- it's obviously, cold out there. It's cold. But look, the, the inauguration being serious, uh, the Democrats are telling people to stay home. Uh, yes, obviously, absolutely. that's for COVID and, um, and uh, I suppose, to protect uh, uh, America's, what is it, 40, which number president is he? He'll be 46 unless, of course, uh, they institute the 25th Amendment and kick Trump out in the next couple of weeks. And apparently Mike Pence is now on the bad boy list. Well, this week is the end for Bill Barr, which leads me to believe that some of the pardons and some of mm. the actions that mm. Trump has got coming up. Bill Barr, the attorney general, until the last day or two here in the United States, he'll be out which leads me to believe that some of the things Trump is contemplating in his orange brain are uh, some things that were even too far for Bill Barr to go. And Bill Barr, of course, no special counsel to investigate the election, no special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden, no signs of any serious irregularities. And you know what? Yes, there have been two cases so far. I believe it's two in Pennsylvania that showed up of just as the Republicans said, the dead voting, the dead voting in Pennsylvania. Yeah, two cases so far. <laughs> Both those people were people having their deceased parents vote for Donald Trump. 
You know, I can, I mean, I, I never studied to be a doctor. Um, I used to watch uh, uh, Grey's Anatomy. What is it? Grey's um, um, Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy. That's the closest I've come yeah. to being a doctor. But mm-hmm. I can tell. I can tell, Kirk, that you're feeling fantastic. Um, you haven't yeah. had your vaccine yeah. yet. What do you think about this vaccine, no. the, the delays and the, the politics? Yeah. And, and I see uh, AOC. You know, she got the, uh, got, the, got the prick in the arm. And uh, she, you know, she's, she's happy. Um, but there's some... There is some unrest about the uh, the politicians or the the nation's oh, leaders, and uh, and that, that's to be expected too. But um, well, do you those think- folks that were out there like Marco Rubio, the senator mm. from Florida, mm. oh, it's no problem. Oh, let me get this shot first. Joni Ernst, mm. the senator from Iowa. Thankfully, my daughter, who is a physician, she was able to get uh, her first shot. I have no idea when I'll get mine. Big controversy here in Nevada, whether the legislators should be able to go first in line so they can have their legislative session. I say, you know, here again, we have a Democrat-controlled legislature here in Nevada. I say BS to that crap. You guys can hold your damn legislative sessions on Zoom. The Nevada Supreme Court can issue a special dispensation so you don't have to meet in person. All medical personnel on the first lines, not the people that are doing telemedicine from home, but everybody who's working in a hospital, of course, all the hospitalists, those are the physicians that tend to folks in hospitals, the intensive care physicians, Mm. all those folks should be done first. All the paramedics, all the first responders, then maybe we can look at politicians. And of course, you don't need it being over there in safe Australia. But as far as living here in the hot zone, unfortunately, I may be... um, Last in line, I'll just be hanging here. No, no, you, you're 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 that age. You're that age group that Not that you'll be up the front. <laughs> 75, Mike, 75. Well, oh, you're not 75. Oh. Yeah, well, we finally got, you know, we got another relief bill coming out. Mm. And, you know, fortunately, we live very low cost here in the, um, the what we call the LTA. So we've got the OLA, the outdoor living area, and I live in the uh, LTV. The LTV is the lower Tropicana Valley. So it's probably the lowest cost place to live in Las Vegas, which if you handle things right, not quite as good as it used to be. Because honestly, the biggest change in my life in the pandemic has been my access to food. Mm. Because pre-pandemic, I'd say about 60% of my food came from casinos. And all of my liquor came from the casinos. Too bad they could give away marijuana. That would be great. Dr. Marijuana. Yes, Dr. Reefer, he took care of me. But uh, so that has been a huge change. But uh, this is a very low cost place to live. So 600 is a big help for us. But if you're paying three or four thousand a month rent for your mm. two bedroom apartment in the New York City metro area, you got some serious problems going on. That money is not going to help you much. And even the extension is only going to take people to the edge of winter to get out into March. Mm. So there's mm. a lot of work. And as President-elect mm. Biden said today, it is really just a down payment on what needs to be done to get the country back on track. And it's been such an uneven pandemic because mm. many people who could take their work to home, they had no income deficiencies. In fact, they did better because they were to get these uh, stimulus checks. And then so many other people, especially the hospitality workers, the entire hospitality industry here in Las Vegas just decimated the Mirage Hotel, which of course really got the super hotels going back in 1989 here in Las Vegas. It's announced that it's suspending all midweek operations, TFN, uh, really 
uh, for the foreseeable future. So that is uh, kind of a scary, uh, disappointing thing that we've got going on here because it's going to be a long haul before we get the mega conventions back. For instance, CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, it should be happening in just a couple of weeks, and it is this year all online. I don't know how exciting it's going to be to see all the new tech products online, but um, the CES mm. folks are going to try. And if, if you've never been to CES convention, Mike, I, I, I just don't even know how to explain it. It's convention overload. Mm. It's really the most amazing trade show ever. And for now, it's still history. Maybe 2022. It'll be fascinating to see what they plan to do uh, next year with it. OK, just uh, two things quickly. Maybe uh, in Nevada and uh, maybe in Las Vegas, one way of, of uh, distributing uh, the vaccine and getting people back at the casinos. You're going to have that lucky slot that if you get three or four syringes, you, you get the vaccine. Maybe that could be the way. <laughs> you know, and it, and it, it fixes both sides up. you got the tourism people fixed up and the health issues. And I almost think that is the way to go. I almost think to avoid just the rush, and of course there are going mm. to be some people that say, hi, Bill Gates, he put a chip in that vaccine. He's going to be able to track me with my Windows 10 computer. Mm. So there are going to be people that say that, but for the majority of people that are still sane, I mean, it's maybe Mm. just a slight majority, but the majority of people that are still sane who want the vaccine, I think a lottery is actually a pretty good idea. You get the people who need it first, obviously, the folks working in hospitals, the first responders, and then once you get all the key people done for all of us that are left, you just simply log on, you enter your information, and it's a lottery, mm. and you get called by your number. That might be the way to go, but with all the technical snafus and, of course, the Russians invading our computer systems, which, interestingly enough, today Joe Biden at his briefing said that he's not getting nearly the information he needs about this hack from the Department of Defense. So you've got stonewalling going on. You've got as much salt of the earth, salting the earth as you can from uh, Donald Trump. He is really uh, just making as difficult as possible because Mm. this computer hack, a true, you know, I listened to the president of Microsoft last week and he says, this is something that's going to take billions of dollars and years. And right now, Donald Trump, of course, is like, hey, maybe it's China. China. Now, now, we'll get off Donald Trump. I did get a... Uh, I don't a t- want to be honored. No, I, I got a... T- honored, I, no, I received I, a... I, I, no, no. I mean, you know, I may be a gay man, but I do have limits. But I, I got a text from one of your ducks, and they were saying, can I please yeah. talk to Uncle Kirk about Christmas? Because they get, yes. they get a bit nervous. No, they're going to be okay. I, you know, I mean, they're there in case of a mm. true emergency, mm. but it would have to be, it, I would have to be starving because I am kind of a wimp. You know, I can't go in there and break their long necks. And oh, we're terrible, terrible. But, but you could do that. You could do that to some politicians, I believe. Kirk yeah. Clyde, have a great Christmas. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Uh, uh, the, the last show for the year. And wow. um, can you believe it? It's just, just gone like, that. Just to, it's, it's been long and short at the same time. And I just want to make it clear, figuratively, not literally for the politicians. Yes, exactly right. Otherwise, yes. otherwise, we could be uh, sharing a cell together. Evil wanted to say, bye, happy new year. <laughs> Goodbye, um, Evil. What's evil what, what is Evil getting for Christmas? Uh, another day of life after eating my favorite pair of flip-flops today. It's a nice day here. It's 20 <laughs> degrees here in Las Vegas. Had my flip-flops out. 
Now they're in the garbage. Thanks to evil. She says, yay, I did it. I ate them. That's what happens when you're a Democrat dog. You flip flop. Uh, great. Ah! <laughs> nice talking. See you next week. Thank you very Bye. much. Bye.